Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, that's a mayach. I want to welcome you. Also, welcome everyone watching uh, remotely on our YouTube live channel to our Arab uh, Yom Kippurim service. Yom Kippur, as you know, was the Day of Atonement, uh, where we confess our sins and we repent. Uh, we turn from them and we turn back to the Lord. Uh, and we thank God for the forgiveness that we have through the blood of the Lamb, hallelujah, Yeshua, our Messiah, who's our Yom Kippur sin and guilt offering, uh, through whom we have atonement and redemption. And to get, yeah, to get at this theme uh, of the nature of sin and how it abides, often hidden, deep in our hearts, I want us to look today at a very famous account in the Torah uh, of the Israelites in the wilderness when they asked the Lord for meat, uh, and he sent them uh, quail. So turn with me to the book of Numbers, the, uh, the book of Numbers chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 4, and put it on the overhead. So, uh, Babi Bar, Numbers 11, beginning in verse 4. The rabble among the people began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt and Mitzrayim at no cost. Also the cucumbers and the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Moshe, Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance of their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry. And Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, where can I get meat for all these people? They kept wailing to me. They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. Tell the people, uh, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You'll, you'll not eat it just for one day or two days or five or 10 or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you've rejected the Lord who's among you. Uh, and you've wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Now a wind went out from the Lord, drove the quail in from the sea and it scattered them up to three feet deep all around the camp as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered the quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers. Uh, and then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against them, against the people. And he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named Kivrot Hata'ava, uh, the graves of craving because they, there they buried the people uh, who, who had uh, craved other food. This is a very dark passage, uh, and it gives us insight onto our own sin nature. Indeed, uh, why is it, when we know what the right thing is to do, why is it that we still do what's wrong? Uh, and so on this era of Yom Kippur, I want us to look at three aspects, what I'll call the anatomy of sin. We'll put it on the overhead. Number one, the power of sin. Number two, the addiction of sin. And number three, how we can break free. 
So, number one, the power of sin. In this appendix to C.S. Lewis's book called The Abolition of Man, he, he uh, compiles teachings from all the major world religions in this appendix to show that the, the basic moral principles of how we should live, uh, how we should act toward our neighbor, are all in basic agreement. All the world's religions basically agree on the golden rule and on the general principles of ethical behavior uh, and moral standards. We're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to break our promises. Uh, we're not to, to rob or to kill each other, but, but to respect one another. We're supposed to live by justice and equity and charity and treat each other as we would like to be treated. We're to be generous with our possessions. Every major world religion teaches that we should live this way. There's a universal consensus. Uh, whether you look to Judaism, uh, Christianity, uh, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. But the fact is, we don't live this way. And that's one of the, one of the, the major re reasons for all the misery in this world. Now, when everybody agrees on, on what we should be doing, and everyone agrees you know, well, we're miserable because we're not doing it, here's the question. What is there about the human heart? What is there about the human condition that we can know how we should live and we can know the consequences of not doing it and yet we consistently, universally fail to live up to our own values and our own principles? This is true no matter what kind of government is in power, you know, left or right, no matter what kind of therapy we undergo, uh, no, no matter if we're single or married, if we're young or old, male or female, black or white or Hispanic or Asian, we all know what we should do and the consequences of not doing it, and yet we all violate our own principles and our own moral standards all the time. How do you explain that? The Bible's explanation is that the human heart, my heart, your heart, is sinful. The prophet Yemiyahu, Jeremiah, says this in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can know it? Who can understand it? But it's actually even worse than that uh, on the overhead. Uh, the scriptures, the word of God says we are slaves to sin. Sin, the Bible says, is not just an action. It's not just things you do. It's an actual power. Uh, a sinful action is a power. Every sinful action has a suicidal, destructive power upon the faculty that put that action forth. So, for example... Uh, when you sin with your mind, that sin shrivels your rationality. When you sin with your emotions, that sin shrivels your emotions. When you sin with your will, that sin destroys and dissolves your willpower and your self-control. On the overhead, sin is the suicidal action of the self against the self. Sin destroys freedom. Sin is an enslaving power. Sin shrivels us up. That's what the Bible teaches. And you can see it right here in our text. The children of Israel, they say, we had a wonderful time in Egypt. Let's go back. <laughs> and they say this numerous times during the wilderness wanderings. And as you know, we, our people, we were slaves in Egypt. But through God's miraculous intervention and through Moses, God's anointed leader, we were freed through the series of supernatural plagues that God caused to fall upon the Egyptians. And through the splitting of the Red Sea, so our Jewish people, we were no longer slaves socially or, or politically or, or economically. Uh, and yet they say, we had it better off in Egypt. 
I want to go back to Egypt. <laughs> we want the comforts of Egypt. We want the, the civilization of Egypt. We want the great food of Egypt. <laughs> we want to go back. Now we read this and we say, wow, what idiots. <laughs> How could they want to go back to slavery? You know, uh, and backbreaking labor and threats of genocide. What total idiots. How can they harp on the free fish that they had in Egypt and not realize that was just their slave rations? Don't you remember? They, they, they were slaughtering your children, drowning your sons in the Nile, whipping you if you didn't fulfill your daily quota of bricks. Uh, the, and they made you make bricks without giving you the straw for, for the mortar. You had to gather your own straw without lessening your, your quota of bricks. What rational person says, yeah, but we got free fish. <laughs> That's like a prisoner praising the fact that the prison guard fed him his daily prison rations. How could our people rejoice about free fish and want to go back to Egypt and consistently and conveniently leave out all the facts of our terrible slavery and our backbreaking forced labor, our outrageous treatment, and the Egyptians' constant cruelty against us? So we say, what idiots, what fools. Don't they know if they actually did go back to Egypt, they'd be treated even worse, possibly even slaughtered? And so don't they know the only right thing to do is to stick with the manna and go forward to the promised land? It's so clear what needs to be done. Any fool can see what needs to be done. And yet they can't do it. Uh, and they won't do it. And they don't do it. Why? They're still slaves in their minds and in their hearts. Uh, they're not physical slaves, but they're spiritual slaves. Now, to be a political or an economic slave means you're powerless economically, you're powerless politically to do what's best for you. So, for example, maybe the best thing for you isn't to make bricks, but to be a doctor. Uh, but if you're a slave, you don't have that choice. <laughs> you're powerless to pursue the best use of your gifts and talents. Uh, you're powerless to do what, what's best for you. Now, our fellow Israelites in the wilderness, they'd been removed from physical slavery. But a more profound sense of slavery remains. They're, both, they're still spiritually slaves. They're spiritually powerless to do the right thing. They're spiritually powerless to do what's best for them. They're spiritually powerless to do what's good. And the, and the Bible says we are all spiritual slaves in the same way. So, for example, Paul says this in Romans 7, uh, verse 18 on the overhead. I have a desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do. This is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a principle in me, with me, that when I want to do good, evil is there with me. I'm sold as a slave under sin. Even the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I found it a principle that the more I want to do good, the less I'm actually able to do it. The more I try to do good, the more I see I'm unable and I'm, and I'm powerless to do the good. Now, if I'm this era of Yom Kippur, if you say, well, that's not my experience. Uh, I've never felt anything like that. You know, I've never experienced a powerlessness uh, to be able to do good. You know, that, that's not me. That's not my life. That's not my experience. I can do good whenever I want to, whenever I see it. Don't you hear what Paul's saying? Paul says, the more I try, the more I aspire, the more I'm aware of my spiritual slavery. Which means if you're not aware of, of being a spiritual slave, 
your moral and your spiritual standards are way too low <laughs> and you're in denial. The heart is deceptively wicked. Who can know it? So for example, let's take the golden rule. Everyone agrees with this. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Okay, I challenge you to do this. I challenge you for the next seven days to live 100% by the golden rule. I want you to meet the needs of others with all of the same strength and joy and creativity and speed with which you meet your own needs. Just for seven days. Just try it with intentionality uh, and with purposefulness and with full attention uh, and, and consciousness. Be as excited about other people's success as you are about your own. Live by the golden rule. And I will tell you, within a few days, if not a few hours, you'll be saying, God, spare me from the golden rule. <laughs> because you will see it as an undeniable principle that the more you try to do good, the more you will see evil within you. And so Paul says this in Romans 7, verse 21. So I find this principle at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there in me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making, making me a prisoner of the law uh, of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will spare me from this body of death? Who will rescue me? We are slaves to sin. We see what we should, what should be done and we can't do it. And anyone who thinks they can is in denial. You're fooling yourself. Uh, and you're also, by the way, guilty of the sin of spiritual pride. To think you can do this. <laughs> so, for example, if you're 60 years old and you think, I'm as strong and as fast and have the same long-distance endurance as I had when I was 20, well, number one, you're deceiving yourself. Number two, you, you, number two, you haven't been tested, which is the only reason you can say that. You haven't run a four-minute mile lately, have you? <laughs> and when you're tested, you say, I'm not 20 anymore. <laughs> <laughs> when you're not tested, you say, I feel fine. Uh, I'm not any weaker or any slower or any worse shape than I was when I was 20. I'm still in the same great shape. But you can only say that if you haven't been tested. In the same way, anyone who says, I'm not a spiritual slave, I have complete control over all my sinful impulses and desires and temptations, has not been tested. You haven't tried, for example, to really live by the golden rule in complete active conformity and obedience for an extended period of time. The Bible says on your own, you're powerless to do good. Sin isn't just an action, it's a power. That's the first thing. On the overhead, number two, let's look at the addiction of sin. The second thing we're taught here is, is the structure of this slavery, this addictive structure. Uh, and we see it in our text in Numbers 11. So, uh, now remember, the Bible says that when you commit a sinful action, it's not just an action. But, but when you sin, it's going to happen on the overhead. When you sin, it has a powerful effect in which your own freedom, your freedom to want the good, to will the good, to think the good, to understand the good, is being undermined. So that each time you sin, you are more and more losing your freedom. It undermines your mind, your emotions, your will. And you can see it right here in our text. Look at Numbers 11, verse 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and saying, if only we had meat to eat. 
So the power of sin we see here begins with craving. Uh, they begin to crave uh, the Egyptian food and the comforts of Egyptian civilization. So first, their emotions uh, are being enslaved. Second, look at the next verse, Numbers 11, verse 5. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic. And we already spoke about uh, how this is a form of, of, of being in denial. <laughs> so now their thinking is enslaved. They think this food was without cost when it was really at the cost of their slavery, <laughs> the, the, the cost of their freedom. So now their craving has overcome their thinking. They're, they're not reasoning. They're not thinking clearly. And then thirdly, we look at the next verse, Romans, uh, Numbers 11, verse 6. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. They claim to have lost their appetite. But the literal Hebrew actually says, our strength is dried up. That uh, They rationalized and they denied the truth. And now they don't even want the manna anymore. They say, we had no strength. Uh, we can't obey. Uh, we can't eat this at all. You know, uh, we can't go on. Their will is now dried up. Uh, uh, it's on the overhead. Uh, their strength is dried up. And so we see the power of sin first over their emotions and then their intellect and finally their will. And in the end, the Lord says, I'll give you this meat that you so desperately want, but the more you get it, the less you'll love it. Look at Numbers 11, verse 18. The Lord will give you meat to eat for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you've rejected the Lord who's among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt on the overhead? And now what we have here is like the classic addiction pattern. The Bible is teaching us that all sin is addiction. Uh, for example, alcoholism is slavery. And the scriptures say every sin, put yourself in here thinking about wherever you are sinning. Every sin, whether it's bitterness or envy uh, or gluttony or, or materialism or, or judgmentalism uh, or unforgiveness or gossip or pride or dishonesty or immorality or, or impurity, Every sinful action becomes an addiction on the overhead. Every sinful action brings into your life a power that operates exactly like the addiction cycle and the addiction dynamics operate. Thus, for example, uh, in the specific addiction of something like, like alcohol or, or a drug addiction or pornography, you have a, a case study, a, a microcosm of how sin works in your life, uh, in the large, in the macro, uh, in general. Do you know how addiction works? You st it starts like this. There's a distress in your life, some kind of disappointment or distress. As a result, you choose to deal with this distress with an agent. Now, the, the agent might be sex or, or drugs or alcohol. The agent promises transcendence. This agent promises freedom, uh, a sense of, of being in control, a sense of being above it all, a sense of, of being liberated, a sense of escape, uh, and you do it. But when you do it, when you take this addicting agent by way, of, by way of how you deal with life, the trap is set on the overhead. Uh, and it's a set because three things now begin to happen. First, you get trapped into what's called tolerance. There's a tolerance dynamic. The tolerance effect is that today, the amount of drugs or alcohol or this type of sexual immorality or pornography I need is no longer going to be sufficient for me tomorrow. Tomorrow, it'll no longer give me the same satisfaction effect that I'm looking for. And you find, them, you need, you find you need it more and more and more. Uh, uh, and the more you indulge, 
And the more you feed your habit, the more you need it just to maintain the same effect. In other words, your emotions are shriveling up. That's what, you know, that which brought you joy yesterday will not be enough to bring you joy tomorrow. Because your emotions are shriveling, your emotions are, are numbing, uh, there's a tolerance effect. At first, if I just had this, uh, but then after a while, it, it can be coming out of your nostrils. And yet, you can't get your heart going anymore. Uh, uh, so, so you have to have more and more and more on the overhead. So number one, the addiction destroys you with this tolerance effect. Number two, addiction destroys you because of denial. Uh, part of this addiction pattern is that your craving makes you rationalize uh, and justify uh, and not think straight. Uh, and here's why. You know you're an addict uh, when you're trying to deal with your distress with the very thing that's causing your distress. You know, it's how ironic, isn't it? That you're, you're trying to escape your distress with the very thing that brought you that distress. Uh, and, when you think, and when you're in that cycle, you're stuck forever. Uh, down and down and down. Now, do you know what the Bible is saying here? Uh, on the overhead. It's trying to tell you that that's how sin operates. That when you think that to disobey God will bring you freedom, that very act that promises freedom is actually taking away your freedom. The very act you think is putting you in the driver's seat is actually, actually taking you out of the driver's seat. Now, some of you, statistically, are probably addicted to something, whether you realize it or not, whether you admit it or not. And there are an incredible number of addictions out there today. And the Bible says this is the experience of every human being to some degree uh, on the overhead. First of all, if you live for anything but God, and by the way, that's what sin is. Sin is craving something more than God. Sin is making something more important than God. Sin is living for something more than God. If God is not at the very center of your life, that's the essence of sin. Uh, and therefore, you'll experience this eternal tolerance effect in your life. So for example, you may have said, if only I could just get into that career. Uh, and at first, it was such a rush. I'm a lawyer now or I'm a doctor, or an engineer, or a pilot, or an architect, or an accountant, or an investment manager, or a banker, or a broker. But then that initial rush fades. Or you've always wanted to marry someone good-looking, and sharp, uh, and smart, and well-connected. And at first, it's such a rush. But after a while, there's a tolerance effect, and it begins to pale. Why are you continually empty? Why are you never satisfied? Never content. Don't you see the addiction dynamic at work here? Well, you say, what's wrong with wanting a good, career, good spouse? What's wrong with wanting a successful career? I thought, you, David, you were talking about sin. Yes, but don't you see, when you live for anything more than God, that is sin. And it's an addictive dynamic. Uh, because when, when, when you live for anything besides God, and you'll find uh, the, the, the more and more you get of it, the more and more you need it, uh, and the less and less satisfying it is. And your heart and your emotions are shriveling. And then your mind shrivels. Aldous, uh, Aldous Huxley, uh, author of Brave New World, not a believer, uh, he says this, and listen carefully. I, I don't have it on the overhead, so listen carefully. This is uh, Aldous Huxley. He says, when I went off to college, I saw all these wonderful philosophies, Here's atheism and agnosticism and all these various philosophies. And I realized that although I was raised in the Church of England, 
I was biased against a belief in God. I wanted there to be no God because I wanted to have premarital sex and not feel guilty about it. So don't you naively think, he writes, that philosophers are objective when they address issues of theology and the Bible and belief in God. I chose my atheism as an act of sexual liberation. I became an atheist to justify my behavior. Wow, pretty honest. <laughs> the more you reject the Lord, the more your mind shrivels. But it's even more than that. For example, what if you decide to hold a grudge against someone? Uh, what if you say, yeah, I know I'm supposed to forgive, but I'm gonna hold this grudge anyways. Do you know what that does to your mind? It rots your mind. Because first of all, no one order to hold a grudge, you've got to feel morally superior to that other person. You can't see yourself as an equally guilty person as he, as he or she is. So when the evidence comes in that, hey, I'm a sinner too, and I'm weak and I'm flawed, you screen it out. You cannot receive it uh, or objectively consider it. Because you can't hold on to your grudge uh, uh, and crave vengeance and still be rational. So you screen out any evidence of your own sin. You won't admit you're as bad as the person you hold this grudge against. And you also screen out any evidence that that person isn't really as bad as you think they are. You automatically see them in the worst possible light. So on the overhead. Sin not only will destroy your emotions through this eternal tolerance effect, but it also destroys your mind. You won't think objectively. And at the end, thirdly, your will is gone. And here's why. In their heart of hearts, the Israelites, grumbling in the wilderness and, and craving meat, they're saying, they're saying something to themselves. What are they saying? They're saying, if only. Look at Numbers 11, verse 4. The Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. And this is the thing in your heart of hearts that's burning. This desire, this craving that says, if only I had this, if only I had that. And overhead. Jonathan Edwards says, sin turns your heart into a fire. Just as there's never been a fire that says, that's enough fuel, I'm fine now. <laughs> In the same way, there's never been a sinful heart that says, I've had enough success. Uh, I've had enough lust. I've had enough approval. I've had enough comfort. No, just the opposite. The more fuel you put into a fire, the hotter it burns and the more it needs. The more oxygen it's sucking, the more fuel it's got to have. And this is the heart of the dynamic of fire, both physical and spiritual. So next time you're crabby, next time you're, you're grumpy, next time you're irritable, next time you're anxious, next time you're really down, ask yourself, what am I telling myself would make me happy if only I had it? And the overhead. There's an if only at the bottom of this sin and this addiction dynamic. Whatever you tell yourself, if only that, that becomes your slave master. And it, and it destroys your will. So for example, when you lie, uh, lies necessitate other lies. Envy necessitates more envy. Uh, racism necessitates more racist thoughts. Lustful thoughts or actions breeds more uh, and builds on itself. It kindles the fire of more lust. Anyone who's ever viewed porn knows this is true. It's never satiated, it's never satisfied. Likewise, jealousy breeds more jealousy, 
Bitterness necessitates and causes more bitterness. It feeds the fire. In the beginning, when you first tell a lie, you still have an appetite for the truth. But it won't take long for sin to kill that good impulse within you. Because sin is a power on the overhead. And the sins you indulge in eventually become your slave masters. Because in your heart, those things burn with this lie. If only. Everything would be fine if only I had that. And this lie, this power, creates a suction in your life that's like a fire. I've got to have more approval. I've got to have a better spouse. I've got to have this. That's the reason I'm unhappy on the overhead. And the more you throw in there, the more it wants. Because sin enslaves. And we're all addicts. All sin is a form of addiction. And the overhead last seat on number three. How do we break free of this addiction cycle? How are we healed on the overhead? The first we've got to see in our passage that God does an intervention. <laughs> he comes in and says, you've rejected me. Look at Numbers 11, verse 20. You've rejected the Lord who's among you. You've wailed before him, saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? The Israelites claim, well, we, we were just asking for meat. But when Numbers 11, 20 makes it clear they were grumbling against the Lord uh, and wanted to go back to Egypt. They've rejected him. Often, Someone has to come in from the outside and tell you, you think that this and this is your problem, but your real problem is this. Someone has to confront you and wake you up because you're never going to wake up by yourself. Someone needs to lovingly, lovingly confront you and tell you, you think this is your problem, but your real problem is a spiritual one. Your real problem is that the Lord Yeshua the Messiah is not burning at the center of your life. The Bible says that if the Lord is not at the center of your life, you're a slave, and you don't even know it. But if you don't know it, you're in danger, because there's no bigger slave than the person who doesn't know they're a slave. All the 12-step movements know this on the overhead. The person who thinks they have the power to change on their own anytime they want is a powerless person. But the person who says, I'm powerless, I need help, has taken the first step to getting the power to overcome their problems. If you say, I'm not spiritually lost, I'm not wicked, I'm not enslaved to my passions, I'm not powerless to do good, in fact, I'm a pretty good person, you're absolutely powerless. You're a slave for your desires and your idols, and you're in denial. And, the worst kind, and you're the worst kind of slave because you don't even know you are one. The second step to healing is also brought out here in Numbers 11, verse 20. The Hebrew literally says, you will loathe the meat because you loathed me. That's the literal Hebrew. It doesn't just say, you've rejected me. That's the way it's translated in our English Bibles. But the literal Hebrew says, you will loathe the meat because you loathed me. You'll lose your appetite for everything else because you lost your appetite for me. So if you're a believer, if you're a Yeshua follower, and you're dealing with enslaving habits, it's not enough just to say, this is wrong, I've got to stop. It's not enough just to beat yourself up or to say, I'm going to try harder and harder. The real reason you're having a problem with an enslaving habit is because you don't have a proper appetite for the Lord. You're not tasting God. Now, I'm not talking about believing. I'm not even talking about obeying. I'm saying tasting. The way to get out from under your enslaving habits 
the, uh, the secret of freedom on the overhead, the secret of freedom is this, on the next overhead, you've got to worship. Uh, to break, you've got down the overhead again, to break free from an enslaving habit, you must worship. You've got to taste and see that the Lord is good. You've got to have great worship. You've got to have weeping worship. You've got to have glorious worship. You've got to have a sense of the greatness of God. You've got to be moved by worship and truly experiencing the Lord, moved to tears, moved to laughter, but uh, by both what Yeshua has done for you and who he is. And this has to happen all the time. Uh, just like with parenting. You can't say, well, I've got a half an hour this coming Tuesday night for my son, for my daughter. We're going to sit down and have real quality time. <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. You can't just sit down with your kid and say, okay, honey, for the next half hour, we're going to have quality time. <laughs> Tell me all your deepest hurts and needs. Pour out your heart to me. Tell me your fears and your concerns. Then I'll put my arms around you. I'll encourage you. I'll assure you everything is going to be fine and how great you are. And then your child will say, oh, dad, I can't tell you how much this means to me. No, it doesn't work like that. Tuesday night from 8 to 8.30 p.m. No, people don't work that way. Personal relationships don't work that way. Rather, it's an ongoing, regular, day-to-day -day interaction. Not artificial times of a formal interaction. Quantity time is what leads to quality time. It can't be forced or scheduled or sandwiched in between a few minutes of your busy schedule. Quality time will happen spontaneously within the context of lots of quantity time. And that's the way it is with Yeshua as well. You've got to spend time seeking him. You've got to spend time reading his word. You've got to spend time in corporate worship. You've got to. And the overhead... And if you're making, spending time with the Lord your priority, if you're seeking him, if you're reflecting on him, if you're worshiping him, if, if you're praying to him, then over time and from time to time, these weeping and glorious times of personal interaction and personal encounter with him will come. And the overhead. And this personal interaction and encounter is the only thing that will replace the fire of sinful habit patterns burning in your heart. This is what will replace that little seductive voice in you that says, if only I had this, then I'd be happy. You need a new fire that says, if only I saw the Lord. If only he was close to my heart. If only I could experience him to be as great as I know him to be. If only I could sense his holiness. If only I could taste his grace and it's as sweet as I know it to be. If only I had that. And when that's burning in your heart, you're free. You're free. Otherwise, because you say, if I have him, who cares what they think about me? Who cares if I'm not married yet? Who cares if I don't have this child yet? I'm free. I've got the Lord. And the only way this burns in your heart is through worship. Worship. Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. The reason nothing else will ever satisfy. Uh, and and, and uh, the reason nothing else will ever overcome your, your addiction pattern is because you haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good.
experientially. If you taste and see the Lord is good, then this tolerance effect becomes completely reversed. You reverse it. Look at Lamentations 3, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But that's not true of anyone or anything else. Any other idol may seem great at the time, but it quickly gets old and it does cease. It ceases. Only the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Only his mercies are new every morning. For example, a Bible verse that you've known all your life can be absolutely new to you today, new every morning. You read it, it suddenly strikes you and jumps out of you in a fresh, dynamic, instantly relevant way. It's like, I've always known this verse, but it's amazing how it now jumps off at me. Uh, his word is new every morning. And the overhead, because Yeshua is the only master who does not enslave. He's the only master who forgives. He's the only one whose mercies are new every morning. And the overhead. And then finally, lastly, you need not just Moses. You need a better than Moses. A greater than Moses. Moses says this to God. Look at Numbers 11, verse 14. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden's too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, Lord, please go ahead and kill me. Don't let me face my own ruin. Moses says, I'd rather die than bear the burden of taking these children of Israel to the promised land. Their sins are falling on me all the time, and I can't bear it, Lord. I'd rather die than bear this burden uh, of taking them to the promised land. But Hebrews 3 says there's a better than Moses who died in order to bear this burden. And he does take us to the promised land. Look at Hebrews 3, verse 3. Yeshua has been found worthy of greater honor than Moshe, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, but Messiah is faithful as the son over God's house. Yeshua is the one who took our burdens of sin uh, as our Yom Kippur sin and guilt offering, as our Korban Hashem, and he was willing to die. Unlike Moses, he doesn't say, I'd rather die than bear this burden. No, just the opposite. He says, I will die and thereby, and thereby take this burden. I'll die in order to bear this burden. Yeshua lost his freedom so that you could be free. He was nailed to the cross so that you could be sprung. He was chained into the dungeon, into the darkness, so that you could be freed into his marvelous light. We need a greater than Moses, and we have one. Moses points to the ultimate redeemer, whose mercies are new every morning. And Yeshua says this in John 8, verse 32. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. But if you know the truth and continue in my truth, the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So it's the love of God that changes us. 1 John 4, verse 28. Perfect love casts out fear. But perfect love does not cast out the fear of God. Because the fear of God is categorically distinct from any other fears. Because that's the object uh, and the ground of being itself. He who tamed Leviathan and covered Sinai in a holy fire, who laid the foundations of the earth and shut the doors of the sea, whose mind is an abyss of mystery, and yet the only thing worth knowing, how can we discover his eye fixed upon us, this Yom Kippur, and not tremble. 
The fear of God must increase in proportion to our love. No one has truly feared the Lord who has not truly loved him. And no one who has not truly, and no one has truly loved him who has not truly submitted to the Lord's discipline. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the overhead. Walking with Yeshua requires holy fear. Yerat HaShemayim. A fruit of which is rigorous obedience. So don't give me this modern, moralistic, therapeutic Yeshua uh, whose back is bent not by carrying a cross, but by accommodating our culture. No. Give me the Messiah who gallops on a white horse, whose eyes are flashing with lightning, his mouth bearing a double-edged sword in which to, to raise the world's systems of injustice, raise it down, whose fierceness and victory is not other than his love. Give me the Messiah of, of high strangeness, the seven-eyed Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the cosmos, who's the very grammar of existence, the logos who holds the universe in the palm of his nail-pierced hands. Give me the Yeshua who demands that I pick up my cross and follow him. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. The music team to please come up. Father, on this air of Yom Kippur, thank you for this Torah passage that all about that shows us the power of sin. That in our natural state we're slaves to sin. That sin is an enslaving power. That the more I try to do good, the more I see evil in me. I, Lord, tonight I confess my sin. That it isn't just my, the individual actions I do, but it's a power. It's the sin nature within me. It's an addiction. And it results in cravings and being in denial and, and, and allowing the world and the flesh and the devil to enslave my will. It results in me wanting more and more and more of the sinful desire to get the same temporary fleeting satisfaction. So Lord, I confess my sin tonight. Whatever it is, Lord, you know what it is. Search my heart, whether it's anger, resentment, unforgiveness, judgmentalism, a critical spirit, gossip, greed, dishonesty, lying, jealousy, pride, lust, uh, immorality, lack of love, unbelief, I confess my addiction to it. I, I confess uh, to wanting this sin at some level more than I want you, Lord. I confess to thinking my sin's gonna make me happy instead of making you, Yeshua, number one in my life. Instead of making you, Lord, my burning passion. Yeshua, help me to taste and see that you are good. Help me to be in a constant state of worshiping you, spending time with you daily, seeking you, meditating on your word. Lord, I acknowledge that there's times of, of, of personal uh, interaction and encounter with you. And the only thing I agree, Lord, and I confess and acknowledge that's the only thing that will replace the fire of my sinful habit patterns burning in my soul. This time of constant personal interaction and encounter and worship of you. And knowing you, Yeshua, is what's burning in my heart. That's what will finally break the enslavement to sinful habit patterns and free me. And so on this air of Yom poor Lord, I repent. And I renew my trust in you, you, Yeshua, the one who forgives all my sins. Amen. Hak